This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The UN Climate Conference in Egypt, for the first time, countries are discussing a loss and damage fund. It's intended to be a pool of money that would finance developing nations to deal with the effects of climate change. For years, wealthy nations have resisted discussing it, let alone commit any funding to it. Frustration's growing with some Pacific Island nations over Australia's lack of commitment to the fund. Middle East correspondent Alison Horne reports from the summit. A group of dancers give attendees at the COP27 conference a taste of Pacific culture. As they glide across the stage, leaders from their nations are negotiating action on a climate emergency. Vanuatu's special envoy for climate change, Pakoa Kaltonga, warns time is running out to save island homes. And he's calling on Australia to back a loss and damage fund to help pay for the devastation. We need Australia to give a commitment. They're a nation that also contribute to the pollution in a greater way than small island nations. So they need to say they're going to help us. There's, there's no point being silent about this thing. It's the first time a discussion about a loss and damage fund has made its way to the COP agenda after being blocked by wealthy nations in previous years, wary of being saddled with liability and compensation claims. Australia has supported its inclusion on the agenda, but to the frustration of some Pacific representatives, Australia won't say whether it'll back the establishment of a fund. Marshall Islands Development Minister John Silk also wants Australia to sign up. The liability will come for them if they do nothing. And then there's a question of where do these people go if their islands are flooded and they can't live with them. Somebody has to take them in. Who's going to be happy to take them in? Would Australia be willing to take them in? A recent Climate Council report found Pacific Island nations are already being affected by sea level rises, extreme weather events and displacement. It's unlikely any decision will be made on a loss and damage fund at this COP conference, but John Silk says the financial aid is already needed. Financing has to come now. Can't wait for, uh, for another COP. I mean, I've been to three COPs. This is my third one. Uh, but I will come go to the next one because I want to make sure that there's a future out there for my grandchildren. The Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, who's attending this summit, was unavailable for comment, but the government says at least $700 million has been promised for Pacific climate and disaster finance. This is Alison Horne in Sharm el-Sheikh reporting for AM. The Federal Treasury Department's given the green light to the Albanese government to cap or reduce coal and gas prices through unprecedented market intervention. It would be temporary. The department which advises the government says huge company profits are coming at the expense of low-income Australians and it's putting some businesses at risk of shutting down. Manufacturing bosses are demanding action too and they're raising the prospect of job losses. But intervening in the market is politically fraught, as Henry Bellow explains. 
Soaring electricity prices forced Australia's largest iron foundry to stop operating again last week and its general manager says the worst is still to come. We turned off our power to our furnaces three or four times. Brett Lawrence runs Intercast and Forge, a South Australian business that employs 170 staff and normally runs 24 hours a day. At peak production, his foundry accounts for 1% of the state's electricity use. Our cost uh, per megawatt has gone up from last year about 50 $50 a megawatt to over $200 a megawatt, about about four times what it was on the prior year. Intercast and Forge buys its electricity on the wholesale spot market, which fluctuates dramatically. But he says the fixed-term contracts being offered to his business are staggeringly high. The prices are in our, uh, from our perspective, are untenable. That's still going to increase our cost of manufacture by probably 6 to 7%. The federal government is worried businesses like this may be forced to close with big price increases forecast for next year. Now the head of Treasury, Stephen Kennedy, says intervention is needed to lower or cap prices. His blunt statement to a parliamentary committee was delivered by his deputy, Luke Yearman. The current gas and thermal coal price increases are leading to unusually high prices and profits for some companies. The same price increases are leading to a reduction in the real incomes of many people with the most severely affected being lower-income working households. Treasury normally resists market intervention, but says the war in Ukraine has drastically altered the energy market and something needs to be done. This would suggest to us that interventions that directly address the higher domestic thermal coal and gas prices are more likely to be optimal. But making that happen is not easy. Alison Reeve is an energy specialist at the Grattan Institute. The options that they've got would be a windfall profit tax, a price cap of some sort, a domestic gas reserve directly compensating gas consumers, whether that's households or businesses. Ms Reeves says most of those are bad options or politically problematic. She says the most likely action is changing what's called the heads of agreement, a supply deal struck between the government and gas giants. So that the exporting gas companies are not sending gas to the domestic market at the same price that it's going to the international market. And that way we can detach the domestic price of gas from the very high international price that we're seeing at the moment. Some manufacturers are calling for a cap on gas prices, but Ms Reeves says that's unlikely. It's very hard to do a price cap. There's no centralised market into which the government could intervene and say, we are going to cap the overall wholesale price at this level. Grattan Institute's Alison Grieve ending Henry Bellow's report. As China's huge economy continues to wind down, it's dragging Australia with it. Our biggest economic contributor is iron ore exports. But with our number one customer battling a downturn, demand for iron-rich red dirt is falling and so too is the price, just as our largest exporters increase their production by opening new mines. From the Pilbara, here's our business reporter, Rachel Papazzoni. Under your feet, as you stand in the red dirt of Western Australia's Pilbara, is our most valuable commodity, iron ore. But that value has been falling fast. The iron ore price has been um, particularly weak in recent weeks, but it's actually been coming off now for most of the year. Lachlan Shaw from investment bank UBS has been monitoring the iron ore price, which has plummeted from US$238 a tonne in May last year to about US$80 now. What we're seeing now in China is rolling lockdowns 
really getting in the way of stimulus in China's infrastructure sector, um, but also stimulus in the property sector. With demand falling through the floor, the timing for Fortescue Metals Group to launch its new iron ore mine could have some scratching their heads, but not founder and executive chairman Andrew Forrest. We've spent a billion dollars on it, a decade of making sure we get all the technology settings right, and now we're simply excited to see it happen. The new mine, Ironbridge, is expected to ship its first load of iron ore by March next year, ultimately adding another 22 million tonnes to the 189 million tonnes FMG sent offshore last financial year. Australia's biggest exporter, Rio Tinto, is also increasing its tonnages, delivering the first ore from its 17th Pilbara mine in June this year. Rio Tinto Iron Ore Chief Executive Simon Trott says the mine called Gudadari will take Rio's total exports to more than 345 million tonnes a year once it's at full capacity. So we've been operating in the Pilbara more than 50 years uh, and we're continuing to have deplete our existing mines and we'll need to continue to bring on new mines uh, to sustain our business uh, in the longer term. We do have short-term fluctuations uh, like we're seeing in the market at the moment. Uh, but we base decisions uh, on our view of the supply-demand uh, profile over many, many years. It's also a view held by BHP. Its newest mine, South Flank, opened in the Pilbara last year and is well on the way to capacity of 80 million tonnes a year. But all these projects, despite the optimism, come against an uncertain backdrop. Supply is increasing and demand is slowing. The days of 240 US dollars a tonne could be over. Here's Lachlan Shaw again. We're very unlikely to ever see the same sort of dynamic in terms of China and its insatiable demand for commodities anytime soon. However, we are going to see the need to construct housing, roads, freeways, schools, hospitals, shopping centres and industry. And that's all going to need steel. Lachlan Shaw from the investment bank UBS, ending Rachel Papazzoni's report. Business owners are demanding immediate solutions to deal with a crime wave accusing the Northern Territory Government of abandoning them. The government says it's trying to tackle the problem with more rehabilitation programs for young people, saying incarceration doesn't work. But it's coming under increasing pressure to get tougher on crime. Jane Barden reports. Scott Davies is one of a growing cohort of anti-business owners calling on the Territory Government to tackle increasing break-ins, vandalism and theft, much of it by young people. He doesn't want his business in Palmerston outside Darwin identified because he fears being targeted again. Around my home, more than five times, I've had people try to break in. In my business itself, it's been broken into three times and it's, it's dangerous. We've been flogged everywhere with crime and we've got to make a stand and and hopefully gain some momentum. What do you think of the responses from the NT government so far? Weak. What are they doing? They're washing down laws so they can look a bit prettier. A lot of people are talking about some of the programs they're wanting to put people in there. But I don't even know if that is really that legitimate because if the criminals are going to start be giving programs and opportunities, what does it say to the good kids? <laughs> 
The NT Chief Minister Natasha Files says the 2017 Royal Commission into Youth Detention showed incarceration doesn't work. Her government slightly increased funding for youth diversion programmes by $9 million a year, hoping that will bring improvements. These are difficult issues to solve, but we cannot keep doing what we're doing. We have to step out and we have to have programmes in place and that's what you're seeing. Like business owners, the NT opposition is pushing the government to get tougher on crime. And it has already responded by toughening youth bail laws. Former veteran NT Police Sergeant Rosanna DeSantis is among Indigenous community leaders, calling on the government not to further cave to the pressure. Yeah, Jane, look, there's always going to be that element of people that think you need to be tougher on crime. But I just think we need to pour a bit more money into those wraparound services and try and help these children get back on track. She says as a manager in the NT Police Youth Diversion Unit, she saw organised meetings between young people and their victims were particularly effective at reducing repeat offending. We made sure that the session in the victim offender conferencing was um, one that was a safe space, one where people spoke respectfully as well, but obviously spoke genuinely and truthfully about the harm that was caused to the victims, you know, and I think just them having that opportunity to share that so the young person and the young person's parent could get a true feeling of what was involved for the other party and then the young person being able to explain why they did what they did it was just a really valuable process and I think if we could do more of those that's a really good option to go to. Many of the young people that came into contact with the police did they have a lot of underlying reasons that they were committing offences? Yes, I would hold my hand on my heart and say that every child that I had to cross paths with in the juvenile diversion process every one of them had disadvantage whether it be substance abuse in the home or one parent or sometimes no parent and couch surfing and, you know, different things to have to deal with and pretty sad if it's a young person having to deal with that and no support. Former Northern Territory Police Officer Rosanna DeSantis speaking there with Jane Barden. The COVID pandemic prompted many workplaces to pay attention to their workers' mental health and now a respected think tank says mental health-related compensation claims could double by 2030. CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, says bosses need to give their workers more say over how and when they do their jobs to preserve their well-being. A worker who successfully sued her employer after denying her claim says workplace stigma is still a major barrier. John Daly reports. Zagi Kozarov has lasting psychological scars from her time working for Victoria's Office of Public Prosecutions. She prosecuted child sex offences, which meant working with victims and dealing with really confronting material. Zagi Kozarov says the work left her with PTSD and depression. The penny dropped once I had children and um, I was dealing with children of similar age and I noticed the way I was parenting had changed dramatically. Um, I noticed that I was becoming hypervigilant. Her employer denied it was the workplace that made her unwell, setting off a years-long legal battle. It ended in a groundbreaking High Court decision and $435,000 of damages paid to Zagi Kozarov. She says breaking the stigma, shadowing workplace mental health is so important. It's a big step for someone to come forward or to even feel comfortable approaching an employer to discuss those issues because of the fear of being judged. The number of mental health injury claims in Australian workplaces is increasing steadily. Economic think tank CEDA has released a report predicting these claims are set to double by the end of the decade. 
Cedar Senior Economist Cassandra Windsor says employers need to pay serious attention to this. So we've seen in recent decades that workplaces have really put a huge emphasis on physical health and safety, and that's had some great impacts. But we haven't seen that in the mental health space yet. What is driving this increase? Look, some of it's um, just around awareness, but the other thing is it's really hasn't been acknowledged as a, a real importance for businesses. Poor mental health already costs the Australian economy $70 billion a year from direct claims as well as from productivity loss and days off. Cassandra Windsor says businesses need to invest in prevention first and foremost. So do your employees have control or some degree of control about what they do every day when they do it? And what sort of training do they have? Do they have the right training, the right skills and resources to do their role? So that's really important is to actually look at the job design. Cassandra Windsor says the legal tests for mental health claims are harder than a physical injury. The CEDA report recommends that governments consider changing workplace regulation and compensation schemes to better recognise mental health injury. Zagi Kozarov hopes one day workplace injuries to the mind are treated just as seriously as those to the body. Why is there a distinction between the two types of injuries? I mean, they're just as bad as each other. Victorian lawyer Zagi Kozarov, John Daly reporting there. Americans are casting their votes in what many say is the most significant midterm elections in years. Republicans have grown increasingly confident of taking control of both chambers of Congress, but analysts are cautioning the result may not be known for days or even weeks. Here's North America correspondent Jade McMillan. After a long and divisive midterms campaign, it all comes down to the voters forming lengthy queues at polling places across the country. For Maryland Democrat Sarah Knight, there's a lot at stake. I mean, I think democracy is on the line and we all have an obligation to come out and vote for people who are going to protect rights and freedoms. And I think, you know, January 6th and other incidents have given us a pretty clear picture of where the Republican Party, or at least the MAGA faction of the Republican Party, is headed. Republicans are talking up the prospect of a so-called red wave as they try to win back control of both the House of Representatives and the Senate. They've got the support of Texas voter Gloria Penny. Inflation the economy, prices are horrendous. I thought I was going to be able to retire this year and I'm going to have to wait another year. So it's back. Around a third of the Senate and all of the seats in the House are up for re-election. If Democrats lose one or even both chambers, President Joe Biden's next two years in office will become incredibly difficult. But it could still be some time before the final outcome is known. Georgia, for example, has one of the most closely watched Senate races and a rule forcing the top two candidates to a runoff next month if neither gets more than 50% of the vote. And with around 40 million Americans having voted early, other contests could take days to confirm. Todd Belt is the Director of Political Management at George Washington University. He says Democrats are more likely to have cast their ballots ahead of today. Many states actually don't start counting those absentee ballots until the um, the polls have closed on election day. So that creates what sometimes looks as the, like the red mirage, meaning that the Republican vote total is much higher, but then Democrats start eating into it uh, as the rest of the votes are, are 
counted throughout the week. Even before the midterms are decided, focus is already turning to the next major election, the presidential race in 2024. Speaking after voting in Florida, Donald Trump again teased the possibility that he'll formally declare his intention to run next week. I think Tuesday will be a very exciting day for a lot of people. His announcement would have consequences for Democrats too. While some in the party would prefer Joe Biden makes way for another younger candidate, he might feel as though he's the only one who could defeat Donald Trump again. This is Jade McMillan in Washington reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. We've had seven months of successive interest rate rises as the Reserve Bank tries to slow out-of-control inflation. Today, the ABC's business editor, Ian Verinder, on how there are finally signs consumers are spending less and why the RBA is now playing mind games. Keep listening to hear ABC News Daily or find the podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.